These are just some observations about your homework. No big deal. Nobody suffered greatly. First, an awkward question. The, one of the homework questions was, what was the significance of circumcision? And everybody gave the correct answer, that it was the sign of the covenant. What I intended to ask is, why? Why circumcision? Now, one person offered, excuse me, because there was the shedding of blood. And I think that's on the right track. Okay? Any other thoughts? Why circumcision as a sign of the covenant? Any thoughts? So, uh, you know, I think it's kind of like symbolic with like sheep and stuff because they cut off, like, when they want to fix a sheep, they cut off its heart to, like, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> okay, but usually what they're doing to sheep is keeping them from having babies. Uh huh. So, anybody else? I know this is awkward. I said it was an awkward question, but gosh, y'all, like Judaism, all of Judaism is based on, uh, totally based on, but it's about circumcision. You've got to talk about these things. Granted, they segregate the classes when they talk about them. All right, but anybody else? Any other thoughts? Um, let me make this observation first. Abraham is commanded to... He's told he's going to have a kid, right? And he can't have a kid, right? I mean, clearly he can't have a kid. Years go by. Decades go by. Doesn't have a kid, yes? The observation I would make is guess when he has a kid? It's after circumcision. After he's circumcised, he has the kid. Now, one other observation. And again, I know this is weird. When Israel goes into the promised land, you remember it says that you're going to go to this land that's going to have wells you didn't dig, houses you didn't build, all this stuff. You're going to have fruit trees that you didn't plant. It says that Abraham, it says that the Israelites can, the, the, the fruit that grows on those trees when they get there, they can't eat it. They are to circumcise the trees, and then after that they can eat the fruit. It's the same word. Why? Okay. Um, so let me just give a couple of... So I, I grant that this is a pretty lofty question to ask in there. But it's still an interesting question. Like, seriously, why that? Have you ever really thought about it? You shouldn't take it for granted. Why in the world that? Okay? One reason I'll give is... Let's just say the humbling of a male tendency. Homer, anyone? War brides, anyone? Lamech, anyone? Okay, it's a kind of a humbling of a sinful male human tendency. Does that make sense? Like, can you see how Abraham is the anti-Achilles? He's old. I mean, really old. He's never described in physical terms. He's not particularly eloquent. Granted, he has multiple wives, but God seems to even sort of curtail that, yes? He says, look, the child of promise is not going to come through a secondary wife. It's going to come through your wife, Sarah. Okay? So I would suggest that that circumcision, <clears throat> Abraham has to be pruned before he can be fruitful. 
something about that human tendency needs to be humbled before it can bear the fruit that God intends. Uh, that God intends. Okay. Um, does that make sense? I think it's interesting. Now, is there a female correlation? And I would suggest there's something common, at least to the first three matriarchs, that is sort of similar. Can anybody guess what it is? It's not a command that they have to do, but it's an observation about something about them. Barren. They're all barren. Okay, human fruitfulness cannot come about except through divine help. And again, think about guys like Achilles. Multiple females in their entourage, super strong, super mighty. And here we have the founder and hero of the Jewish slash Christian faith, an impotent old man. Okay, does that sort of make sense? I think if you want a sort of a proper perspective on God's view of, I don't know, just compare Abraham to Achilles, and I think you get a powerful figure. This is why, by the way, David is somewhat complicated, right? David, he's a man after God's own heart, but he's also a man of blood, and this is why he can't build the temple. He's got the Bathsheba thing, which is a very anti you know, maybe if he had got the lesson I'm suggesting about circumcision, that wouldn't have happened, right? Um, so what I was asking you to do is think a little more deeply about the significance of circumcision. Now, in the New Testament, what's the corollary to circumcision? Like, we don't circumcise for religious reasons anymore as Christians. So what is the matching thing in the New Testament? Or what is fulfilled in the New Testament that circumcision was pointing to? This is a random guess, but um, isn't it whenever they go back to their to Jerusalem to sacrifice stuff? Well, yes, but in the New Testament, in the in Jesus, in the dispensation, Jesus brings about. So here's what I mean: <clears throat> Passover is fulfilled in communion, right? Uh, the sacrifices are, are fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. Circumcision is fulfilled in baptism. Baptism, as Paul says, is a putting away of the flesh and a sharing of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, like Abraham had to put away something, God has to put away something in us so that we can be fruitful spiritually. All right? And there, by the way, back to the image of pruning trees, what are, it's the fruit of the Spirit, yeah? It is the Spirit that allows... So at any rate, Paul says many times that in the New Testament, circumcision is the thing, and this is something that happens to both men and women. Okay, uh, another question, and everybody kind of got this right, but I asked what was the purpose of Abraham's call. What is the ultimate long-term purpose of Abraham's call. Was it just to bless Abraham? What was it? It's to fix what went wrong in Eden. Okay? And that, by the way, y'all, includes not just salvation of souls, yes, salvation of souls, but healing of the whole world. Okay? God intends a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. God intends everything to be right. Okay? And he wants us to be a part of that in the meantime. Yes, it includes salvation of individual souls from hell. 
but it also includes a new heaven and a new earth. All right, everything restored as it ought to be. Um, let's see. Anything else? Um, the Ten Commandments. I, I so there are different ways you can count the Ten Commandments. Did anybody figure out what I was talking about? So di- different people count it differently. I am the Lord who got, brought you out of uh, out of Egypt. Some Christians consider that the first command. And then you shall have no other gods before you. So there's different ways they number it. Nobody got that wrong because you counted it up and that's fine. Um, but it is a question of which one are the commands. Okay? But everyone got, I mean, again, that nobody got that wrong. I was just trying to point out where I was going with that question. Okay, so any questions about the homework? Okay, today we're not going to be, your homework this week doesn't have to do with the book because your book doesn't have a chapter on Egypt. It has no readings on Egypt. Anybody want to speculate why that is? Why does... Jared? Well, (laughs) that's... Yes, we could say that. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, they are in the sense that... I mean, why is Israel part of Western heritage? Because it's like Christian Mesopotamia. Yeah, but Okay, here's the reason. There's nothing that there's nothing of their traditions that is still with us, really, of great significance. Their traditions. The pyramids are still here, but is that a tr- is that a cultural tradition? Do we so in the West we think people have rights. Do you know why we think people have rights? Because of Moses. Because of the Old Testament. Because of the idea that people are made in the image of God. But uh, there's not much in Egypt that is left over. Again, there's cultural artifacts. And this is where I would make a really important comparison. Everybody listen to this. What physically did Israelite culture leave behind? Not a lot by comparison with Egypt. They don't give us a lot of technology. They don't give us a lot of monumental architecture. They don't give us a lot of what we think of from the ancient world when we think of from Egypt. What do, what do they give us, though? The, yeah, the Ten Commandments. The, I mean, right? The basis of many of our laws, okay? So it's important to note what... We could put it this way. The Pyramid of Egypt, or the, the Great Pyramid, the Khufu Pyramid, or Cheops, as the Greeks called it, That is a symbol of one man's power. And how many of you think that the majority of the people building that pyramid wanted to do it? Okay? It's an apt symbol because it's a pyramid with one guy at the top and a whole society forced to build it. Okay? That's power. Would you all agree? There's nobody in the world today that has that kind of power. Nobody. Nobody has that kind of power over that many people, okay? Um, But what is more lasting, power or influence? I would say the influence of the Jews and the Bible is far more lasting, okay? And that leads to another question that we could ask, what what should we aim at for more as Christians, power or influence? And maybe it's not a false dichotomy, but it might be influence, okay? Okay, but we do need to talk about Egypt, or I want to talk about Egypt because I think Egypt is fascinating. So, let's talk about Egypt. A few things to say right off the bat. Actually, everything to say. 
Egypt is all about geography. Okay, Egypt and its history is all about geography. Um, I'll draw a really rudimentary map. What is this in Egypt? The delta in particular. And then the Egypt, or the, Egypt, the Nile. And I really, that's about all I can do. Okay, here's Sinai Peninsula. And there's going up to the land. What you need to know is, in Egypt, and this is even true today, you really can't live anywhere but next to the Nile. And when I say next to the Nile, I mean within about a two-mile range from the Nile. You just can't live. And nobody does live. Um, I could illustrate this by... Let me illustrate this quickly by showing you a picture of Egypt at night. Have you ever seen this? Some of you, your TV will have a screensaver uh, that has, you know, that goes over the world at night. Have you ever seen that? Maybe that's an Apple thing. I don't know. Huh? All right, here we go. This is the best picture. It's, the light is where people are living, and it is right hugging the Nile, okay? And by the way, it seems to stop abruptly. I don't think this is just because, I think there's more. Does anybody know why it stops abruptly there? See that? It's Aswan. There today is a huge dam that controls the flow of the river, all right? But this is the outlines. And then, of course, what are these lights here? It's not a river. That is the edge of the Red Sea. People always want to live by the ocean. Right? I'm assuming those are entirely port towns, like resort towns, or servicing traffic along the, the Red Sea. Okay? Huh? How do they live like any near any like rivers, fresh water, or anything? There's nothing. There's sand and the Nile, okay? Here in this area, there's at most two inches of rain a year. So you never see rain. You hardly ever see rain. All you get is the Nile. In fact, the Egyptians in antiquity said, described Egypt as red land and black land. And what they meant was red land was the sand, and black land was the fertile soil that was deposited by Nile floods every year. Okay? Uh, and you could literally, and I think you can do this today, you can go and put your foot in desert sand and put your foot on fertile Nile soil. Okay? That's how determinative of life the Nile is. The other important thing, and again, I said everything is geography. So the Nile was everything. Oh, and by the way, in contrast with the Tigris and Euphrates, it was predictable and regular. Okay, its floods were anticipated with great joy. They were predictable. They happened at the same time every year. They brought nothing but fertility. I mean, they brought hippopotami and, you know, alligators too, but... <laughs> um, and they, that's the cycle on which Egypt depended. Egypt does not have, you can't find in Egypt, examples of walled cities. Okay, because we could say it this way, Egypt was one 
giant walled city, and the walls of Egypt were the deserts on all sides and the ocean there. Okay? The only paths into Egypt were along the coast and by sea. A madman might try to cross the desert, okay? but you can't get through the desert, right? not, especially not with a significant army. Um, this is considered Lower Egypt, and below here, really the, the Lower Egypt is sort of the, uh, the delta and up, and then this is Upper Egypt. Why? Which way the Nile flows. Okay, it all has to do with which way the Nile flows. In antiquity, so it's one of the rare rivers in the world that flows from south to north. Yes? So the paths along the coast, how would that help since you can't drink like ocean water? Um, well, you would have to be supplied. It doesn't help, but those are the ways in, if, if I could put it that way. And, and again, this was a very important, this is a very important road in antiquity. It was how Egypt got out. So you, you had to be supplied, but it wasn't as much desert as this area is, right? Um, and by the way, Egypt in a lot of its time extended up here, okay, depending. I mean, they fluctuate in their history. All right, so you have the desert. Uh, you have the Egypt is protected by the natural barrier of the oceans and the deserts. Um, and it's divided into Lower and Upper Egypt. Of course, who is it that unites Egypt for the first time? Who unites Upper and Lower Egypt for the first time? Menes. Others, sometimes he's called Narmer, which one translation of that is apparently Raging Catfish. <laughs> which, you know, I mean, if you think about it, a catfish is not a bad emblem of a, of a powerful person. They can be pretty nasty, powerful. Okay. So, um, ancient Egypt was 750 miles in length from north to south. And again, there's not much width. Um, the Nile, as I said, was great for agriculture. I mean, it was really fantastic. Its floods were predictable. The only problem with the flooding is when it didn't happen according to plan. When it didn't come, so it didn't bring good fertile soil. And think about it, in antiquity, they didn't have fertilizer. But you see how they didn't have the problem of depleting the soil? They got new soil all the time. That's kind of a rare thing. All right? Um, Egypt, the word for Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. Which, without spending much time on Hebrew grammar, is a dual. You know, in, uh, does Latin have dual? In Latin you have singular and plural, Yes. All right, some languages have other numbers. You're like, wait a minute, there can only be two numbers. Well, that's, only, that's because you know English. But in Hebrew, they have a third number, and that is dual. So, yadaim is the word for two hands. Okay, there could be a word for more hands, but the point is when you have, you know, in our biology, we hit, we're bilateral, right? So, Mitzrayim seems to refer to the two sides of the Nile. Okay, and again, that shows you how central understanding of Egypt is the river. Um, let's talk about what the Nile gives them. We've already talked about fertilizer. What else? So it gives you fertile fields. What else? Transportation. Transportation is hugely important. Okay. Most Egyptian ships at the time were made of reeds. In fact, we could also say that the Nile gives them reeds. 
Reeds were great. They're vers- it's a versatile product, okay? You can make houses out of it, out of it and it's a really cheap material that grows really quickly. It's kind of like something in Minecraft or something. You know, it just it, it grows really rapidly. Um, you can make houses. You can make clothing. Uh, it provides paper. Okay, papyrus reeds are the source of the original source of paper. In fact, papyrus paper—that's where paper originates. Um, so the Nile gives us fertilizer. The Nile gives us—it uh, gives us transportation. This is how you get north and south. Uh, it gives us the water. Okay, and it gives you fish. All right, it, it provides you a lot of different kinds of food. All right, so whereas in, whereas in Mesopotamia, there's a lot of chaos and a lot of sort of negative, cynical views of life, Egypt sort of had an optimistic outlook if you're a slave. I mean, you can see why life is predictable. The seasons come and go with regularity. There's not a lot of unpredictability. And their history reflects that. So as we said, one of your dates is 3100. There's unification under this first uh, pharaoh. And ever after, the crown has a combination of a snake and an eagle, right? Because these represent the two kingdoms. Um, Based on a very early historiographer, Egyptian history is divided up into 31 dynasties. What's a dynasty? Yes, but what kind? It, it, it's a kingship that continues along what lines? Well, a family, okay, family line. Um, so there's 31 dynasties. There were three major kingdoms, meaning periods of stability, that were broken up by periods they call uncreatively intermediate periods when there was a lack of stability. Um, In Egypt, Pharaoh was the only owner of land. And we can see this, by the way, in the biblical account, except it's attributed to who? So the idea in Egypt was that the Pharaoh owned everything. But at least with one Pharaoh during one period of time, where did that come from? Like Goshen and Scotland? Uh, No, how did it get to be, at least for one Pharaoh, that he owned everything? Because Joseph said, well, if they can't get grain from you, just buy up their land, and then you can give them grain, and then Pharaoh owns everything. Does that make sense? At least we have that in the biblical account there. Um, Okay, so 31 dynasties. The last Egyptian Pharaoh is Cleopatra. Okay? And she's sort of not as, you know, she's a little bit unsavory character. Does anybody know her? I mean, she had a lot of affairs, okay? But her most famous affair, affair or infamous affair was with Antony, uh, the Roman general, all right? And they're going to end. I mean, she famously commits suicide by letting an asp bite her, like a, letting a poisonous snake bite her, which it seems like there's better ways, but... Um, okay, so Pharaoh, again, was the only owner of land... And the pyramids, again, we already, already discussed this, they illustrate the power of the Pharaoh, right? I mean, if, a, if a one guy can build this thing for what, by the way? What's it for? Protection. 
It's his grave. It's his grave. One guy can do this. It shows incredible power. Now, so what does that mean about the difference between Egyptian pyramids and ziggurats? What's the biggest difference? Uh, the Egyptian pyramids were for tombs. Ziggurats were for, like, worship. They were places of worship. Okay, so that's a very significant difference. Another significant difference is in Mesopotamia, they don't have sandstone. In Egypt, they have sandstone, so they, they can build them out of rocks, essentially. All right, um... We don't know. There's lots of theories. People are still debating it. One of the coolest things, we don't know how it was built, okay? Herodotus tells us it took 20 years and 100,000 men to build it. That's pretty clearly based on maybe an oral tradition, but not necessarily very factual. We do know things like, and I think this is fascinating, things like the way they harvested these large multi-ton stones is they would... Say you had a big place where you're harvesting this, right? Harvesting is not the word, mining it. They would drill holes along a line. And then they would hammer wooden spikes into those holes. Everybody got it? Dotted line. And then they would pour water on those wooden spikes. And in the sun, what would happen? They would expand. And all those wooden spikes all along there would expand. And they would have this giant, um, this giant stone that they could use. Um, Okay, many pharaohs, and this depends somewhat on the the dynasty or what period you're in, but many pharaohs never touched the ground. They were conceived of as one of the gods and actually the most important god on earth. And the priests, therefore, were priests to them. So again, it shows you how they're really high on the food chain. Everybody know what I mean by that? They're really high up because the priests... I mean, if there's ever a question about the will of that particular God, at least, there he is to say his will, okay? Um, they, were, they never touched the ground. They often married, there was often a lot of inbreeding with the pharaohs. Does everybody know what I mean by inbreeding? They married their siblings in part because the royal family was holy and there's nobody else to marry, right? That says, hi, again, on the food chain as the pharaoh. And here's another illustration of the power, the influence of pharaoh. One of the ways some of the pharaohs would hunt is they would call the army up. Okay, that's the first thing to... Going hunting, so call the army. And they would have the army march out into the desert in a giant line and then close the line into a circle. And then they would close the circle. And inevitably, if you do a big enough line out into the desert and then close it and then do this to it, what do you get? You get a bunch of animals. Okay? And Pharaoh would ride through in his chariot and bow him. Okay? Shoot him with his bow. Um, so I'm just talking about like the resources used to allow the Pharaoh to go hunting. That's pretty impressive. All right? But it's a tough job being a god, and the <laughs> prosperity of Pharaoh is, or of Egypt is in your hands. When some things happen not according to plan, when the Nile doesn't flood the same, or when there's problems like um, flooding that brings water that's unpotable. What does unpotable mean? You can't drink it. It's, it seems to be diseased. Uh, then the Pharaoh is to blame as well. 
All right, they have an incredibly, as most of us all know, they have an incredibly mixed up pantheon. Many, many, many gods and goddesses. Uh, and many, many of these gods have, um, I'll give you a fancy word, they're anthropomorphic. You all know what anthropomorphic means, yeah? Oh, this is the word of the day. Actually, we may have a few more, but... Anthropomorphic, okay? Great word. And by the way, it's Greek in character, so that tells you, why is it Greek? Why is the word describing this sort of Egyptian phenomena in Greek? What does that tell you? Think about Israel's history. That Greece dominated the area at the time. Right? Alexander the Great sweeps through. He conquers Egypt. All right, so anyway, anthropo is the Greek word for man. And what is morph the Greek word for? You can kind of tell. What? Uh, shape. Okay, so the Greek gods, or excuse me, the Egyptian gods are anthropomorphic. They're in the shape of humans, often with animal heads, right? So the goddess, one of the, there's many goddesses of fertility, but one of the goddesses of fertility, her name is Hecate. She has a frog head. And why, and, and why would a goddess of fertility having a frog head make sense? They have lots of offspring, okay? But it should also explain a little bit of why God sends a plague of frogs on Egypt as one of the plagues, because it's a judgment on one of their gods. And, uh, well, anyway, that's one of the reasons, all right? So they have tons and tons of different deities. Uh, eventually, the one deity, Ra, becomes sort of supreme, and he is connected with the sun, which also, by the way, is perhaps why the, ten, or the ninth plague is darkness, right? It's a judgment on that god. I should also point out that one of the more famous pharaohs, um, his name has Ra in it, which was really common back then, Ramses. And by the way, this part of his name should remind you of what? What does that part of his name remind you of? What? Moses. Okay, it's the same word. It's related to the same word. Okay, their view of the afterlife is probably part of why we have the pyramids. They had a sort of a peaceful view of the afterlife um, and a belief that there were multiple parts of a person. There was the body, there was the soul, and there was the ka. All right, and that was a separate sort of summarizing aspect of the person. And this is in part, we think, why they mummified like they did, because they believed that the ka might come back to the body and need whatever a body might need. And so tombs were filled with everything a body might need, including pets, um, chariots. My favorite thing, when I was a kid in the 70s, they found tombs. Are you all aware of the rooms under the pyramids? Not exactly under, but underground around the pyramids. One of them has a huge, uh, a huge boat, so the pharaoh can go boating. Okay, so they have everything that one could need. But what's important to note is, especially in early Egypt, just like only one guy got a tomb like that in a generation, uh, it was only the pharaohs who were immortal. Okay, only the pharaohs who could be preserved in this way. 
All right, and pre- the the embalming process was super involved. It had an incredible mix of spices. Honey was involved. Um, there's tons of really interesting things about that they do in archaeology. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be an Egyptologist because there's so many cool things. They've taken three thousand year old seeds and planted them, and they've germinated. Egyptologists have found jars of honey. And after you scrape off the top layer, which is kind of dried and crusted, the honey is perfect. They've tasted it. Okay? Um, Egypt is perfect for preserving things. Why? We've already discussed it, Eliana. It's really dry. It's really dry. Okay? Most of the writing of hieroglyphics would have been on papyrus. It's just that the stuff on stone lives, all right? Sometimes we find papyri um, because it's a, a perfect environment for them, which is also why, like, in Europe, finding something really old is rare, especially if it's on something that's going to decay in the presence of moisture. Okay, so the uh, embalming is all about the preservation of the ka. Of course, everybody knows you take out the various organs and put them in various jars, right? Uh, you take the brain out with a special tool through the nose, which is really cool because today when they do a lot of brain surgeries, they go in through the nose. So, like, they were on the right track on something with, you know, access to the brain. <laughs> you preserve all of these organs in jars. Um, okay, we should talk about hieroglyphics. Um, what's, so, hieroglyphics means sacred writings. Okay, and once again, it's a Greek word. And hieroglyphics themselves were incredibly complex. They were partially, everybody's seen them. And so it's obvious, or it it makes sense to say, well, they're partially pictographic. Meaning that picture of of a cow represents a cow. Okay, and I'm exaggerating. but, But the problem with hieroglyphics is they were a combination of pictographic, alphabetic, and syllabic. Remember what I said about cuneiform? Cuneiform, you had hundreds of symbols because you could have hundreds of different sounds. So that's syllabic. What does is, what is, uh, alphabetic mean? What is the essence of an alphabet? One character, one what? Sound. Sound, okay? Syllabic is one, one character, one vowel-consonant combination. But then you have pictographic, which is something entirely different. So at any rate, it took us a very long, long time to figure out what Egyptian said, okay? Um, it was a French guy named Champollion, and this is one of the coolest things about Egypt, one of the most bizarre things about Egypt. Did y'all know that Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Egypt? Okay, Napoleon Bonaparte was a really crazy guy, wild and crazy guy, who... You know, he unified France after the French Revolution, and then he had this vision for this grand, extended French empire. And as part of that, he said, well, we should conquer Egypt. So he conquered Egypt, and he brought scientists, artists, they all explored Egypt. And among other things, y'all know the art, the art and design and architectural style of Art Deco? Y'all familiar with that? Anybody know? This, the, the, uh, what's the tallest, the, the skyscraper in New York before the World Trade Centers? The Empire State Building. That's an Art Deco style, and it was directly influenced 
by all of these artists who copied all of this Egyptian art down. Isn't that crazy? Okay, so there's something, but that's sort of superficial, all right? But at any rate, among the many, many finds in Egypt that Napoleon's people found was a huge basalt stone that had hieroglyphics. It had hieroglyphs. Whoops. It had Coptic, which was a, a, a common script in Egypt, and it had Greek. Aha! Huh? This is called the Rosetta Stone. Champollion, this French guy, intuited that these parallel texts are the same text in three different languages. And he said, I know Greek, so I'll, fig- I'll use Greek to figure out the Coptic, which was a little easier, and then I'll use the Greek and the Coptic to figure out hieroglyphics. And he did. Okay? He's the guy credited with discerning that hieroglyphics was as complicated as it is. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the pyramids because this is the thing people think about the most. Um, obviously, the largest pyramid is representative of one of the richest, more stable times. But again, it's this crazy thing that it's a tomb. Periodically, they're like, oh, there's a chamber we haven't discovered, and my Indiana Jones itch just goes crazy. But then it turns out they don't, it's really boring. Um, they don't find anything. I'm still holding out for something really cool because what's the coolest find in Egyptian history? All right, King Tut. And King Tut is cool. Here's the thing about King Tut. He was a minor pharaoh. He didn't live long. He died young. He didn't preside over a particularly great time. But his tomb is amazing. And the reason it's amazing is it didn't get found by grave robbers. Okay? So here's the thing about the pyramids. It's this giant pyramid, all this work, all this time for this one guy's tomb, and everybody knows, y'all, did you see the stuff they buried in there? As soon as nobody's looking, we're breaking in there and stealing the stuff, okay? So when you build a prominent tomb with prominent stuff, and as soon as people aren't looking, people are going to steal it, all right? So eventually, the, the pharaohs of Egypt realized, you know what, we need to not build our tombs in prominent places. Okay, so this is when a little bit later they moved to the Valley of the Kings, which is down the river. And it's sort of a it's a valley, but it's a desert valley. And they began to build their tombs there in cliff faces. They would carve into the cliff face. They would bury the stuff there. But eventually grave robbers found out about that. Here's what happened with King Tut. So imagine we have the desert floor and we have the cliff face. Okay, and you build a big sand ramp, you carve into there, you bury it, you put a seal on there that says you'll be cursed if you break in there, and then you take this away. Okay, and as time goes by, they're like, okay, well, we can take ropes from the top. There's ways to, there's ways to break in, but multiple tombs were built in these cliff faces. One of them got covered up by desert sand and never discovered, and that's... Tutankhamun, okay? So when it was opened in 1922, it was a rare example of a pharaoh's tomb in ancient Egypt that had not been broken into by grave robbers. And it's, I mean, imagine that. 1922, tomb is some 3,000 years old, and you're the first human to crack it open in all that time. 
They said when they first cracked it open, it looked like grandma's attic. Like they were super excited because of all this stuff, but it was pell-mell, helter-skelter, just a jumble. It looks as though he was buried quickly. And they even think they grabbed some stuff from other Pharaoh's treasure troves and threw them in there too. Like it doesn't look like it was neatly, neatly done. But at any rate, it's one of the most remarkable collections because his, his sarcophagus was in fact, oh, here's another word of the day. Another Greek word. You know, so sarco means flesh. And phagus, does anybody know what phagus means? We see it in esophagus. What is the, what is the, the leukophage? Those are the cells that do what? Eat other things like Pac-Man. So a sarcophagus <laughs> is a flesh eater. It's what you put the flesh into. Okay, and it's almost like it eats it. So his sarcophagus was intact. All these things were intact. Um, so this is why it became one of the most incredible finds. So I'm always holding out for the next Tut's tomb. Like maybe they're going to find another, another tomb like, like his. Um, okay. Let's see. I should also mention one of the more interesting pharaohs. Uh, his name was Akhenaten. And he's interesting because he totally wanted to change Egyptian religion. And he almost seemed to make Egyptian religion monotheistic. Some people speculate, why might he have done that? Might it have been the influence of the Hebrews? I don't think we have any way of really knowing. But at any rate, he changed Egyptian religion, got rid of all the other gods and goddesses, used the sun disk as the emblem for the one God who, by the way, this is what makes him interesting, he believed was the God of all peoples everywhere, not just Egyptians. Couple other things that are interesting about Akhenaten. He moved the capital of his empire to another city. Um, and, and this is one of my favorite things about him. I don't know why this is, but um, if you've ever seen Egyptian statues... Um, they're all very stylized. Does everybody know what I mean by that? They're very, very, they all look the same, right? You have the mascara thing and they're, you know, they're, they don't have pot bellies and, you know, they're like idealized forms. And when Akhenaten's uh, artistic depictions are found, it's not stylized. His features are more like a person. We even think that he was probably Nubian, meaning he was an Egyptian from further into Africa, right, based on his features. And when you look at images of his family, again, these would have been images that he authorized, uh, you see in some of his images, like look here, this is, this is him holding one of his children. That's kind of sweet. It's a family portrait. You didn't really see that in Egyptian pharaohs. He's holding his kid, and he's got a pot belly. And there's more of the images of his body where he's got a pot belly. Like, it's realistic. So there's some interesting things happening with Akhenaten. And there's, of course, God, or the depiction of God as the sun disk. Um... 
So there's some interesting things happening with him. Here's another depiction. Um, this, again, he's got a little bit of a gut. He's, he's slouching. I mean, he looks like a real person, not like a, a fake idealized person. Uh, and that may be his wife. Um, so at any rate, he's interesting, but what's even more interesting is as soon as he died, the priest class rose up, suppressed his religion, moved the capital back, chose the husband of one of his daughters as the next pharaoh. That's King Tut. So King Tut's connected to this guy. Um, so it's interesting in that it was this moment in Egyptian history when maybe they were getting rid of polytheism, uh, but we'll never know because he died and there was a large suppression of his religion um, after that. So we don't know tons. Here's the other thing. He's not all enlightened. He definitely persecuted anybody who worshipped other gods. Okay? As an Egyptian pharaoh would. I mean, you know, they're just, they're just kind of that way. Um, okay. So let me just close with these, main, these thoughts about why they matter. Okay. Oh, we get, we're done. Sorry. You'll have to wait for next week. It's 331. 332. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you.